Thank you again to the Morocco team. Um, I had an opportunity to be with them uh, for a few days, and I saw just how much God had prepared, exactly what Cindy said, and it was such a blessing to see. I think you saw in the video, I was able to present the ordination robe uh, to one of the brothers who were there, and uh, God had been doing amazing things in his life to prepare him for gospel ministry in that city. And so let's continue to pray that the gospel will take root and that all opposition will be um, handily uh, defeated um, by the Holy Spirit. Today, we're starting a new series, our fall series, um, in the book of Hebrews. And I'm excited to introduce this book to you. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Hebrews 1, and we're just going to read the first four verses. <clears throat> As we turn there, um, I just want to tell you a little bit about kind of my heart for the book of Hebrews. When I... Um, when I first started, or earlier in my preaching, um, I was asked by my mentor to preach, but he didn't want to, to ask me to study the book that he had been studying. He said, hey, whatever book that you know, is on your heart, then you can preach from that book. And at that point, I was doing my devotions in the book of Hebrews, and I said, hey, maybe Hebrews, I'll preach from the book of Hebrews. And he said, not Hebrews. And um, I said, why? And he said, because Hebrews is a, a deep and profound book, and you're not ready uh, to preach from the book of Hebrews. And to be, to be honest, I was a little offended when he said that. Said, what do you mean? But um, as I have the, the past uh, 12, 13 years or so um, been in the book of Hebrews here and there, I, I found, wow, he was really right. Because I didn't understand just how profound this book is and how deep um, it is. It's one of those books you put your hand in it and it just keeps going down into the depths and I was surprised by how deep it is. And I'm not sure if I'm ready to preach it now. But I know that this book is desperately needed um, in our day. Because the book of Hebrews is a book of encouragement. It's a book of encouragement that encourages the saints to continue to run towards Christ when it seems like it's impossible to run towards Christ. Or when you feel a lot of opposition, the book of Hebrews encourages us to keep running towards Christ. And I think that now is the time when we really need this in our lives. Let's read Hebrews 1, the first four verses. It goes like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. It's a book of encouragement, um, and he begins by giving us this preeminent picture of Jesus Christ, the truth. And today, I just want to really focus on really two words, and then look at the rest of the passage with you. The two words is, God spoke. God spoke. And I, I don't know if you know how important that is, that we as Christians receive that and are convicted of that, that in this world, God has spoken. You see, when we lose a conviction of the truth, if you don't have truth in your life, it's very difficult to have real conviction. If you don't believe in truth, very difficult to have conviction. And if you don't have conviction as a Christian, it's very difficult to have courage. And the book of Hebrews is given to us so that we may have courage to keep running the race towards Christ. But many people have lost that courage because we have lost the conviction of the truth. 
and especially the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, This week, I heard the story of a voice actor who reads for a living the Bible into Bible apps, and he creates the audio uh, for the Bible apps, and he was asked by a college to come and perform at the university, the passion of Christ, uh, the death and suffering and the cross of Jesus Christ. And he recounted this time when he was uh, giving this performance, and in the middle of the most passionate part of his performance, he started to hear mocking and laughter in the audience. And he was so unnerved, and he was so embarrassed. And when he came off, he gave this quote. He said, what happened, this would never have happened in a Hindu or Buddhist context where reverence is shown for anything spiritual, even if it's not part of their creed. But clearly, our Christian context is different. I think that many of you resonate with this because you live in this world and you feel the hostility towards Christ, And not just towards Christ, but against truth. Even just the very uh, possibility of there being absolute truth in this world. And that could bring us to a real discouragement in running in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews opens up with this vision of truth. This vision that God has spoken. And this is a very important conviction that we have to have at the beginning of this book if the rest of this book is going to speak to us. So what I want to do today is introduce you quickly to the book of Hebrews. Secondly, show you truth assaulted in our world and show you in the book of Hebrews how truth is exalted in Christ. So truth assaulted and truth exalted. And when we do that, my brothers and sisters, we will regain the convictions that we need to run this race again. And I really pray the Holy Spirit speak to you. Will you pray with me so we can start? Lord Jesus, we ask that you now speak to us, renew our love and conviction for the truth of God. We know that many of us feel the hostility towards your word. And for some of us here, we don't know you yet, and we're still pursuing who truth is. I pray that today you would speak mightily to us. Give us foundations we didn't have before. And I pray that you would rebuild the foundations we've lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. An introduction uh, to Hebrews. Um, You know, Hebrews is the only book in the Bible, well, no, only book in the New Testament where we don't know who the author is. Uh, It's an anonymous book. It's the only anonymous book in the New Testament. Uh, We know that it was a man who wrote it, uh, as he refers to himself, and we know that he knew Timothy. And that's why some people have said that this person is Paul. But there's not final evidence that this is Paul. uh, We don't know exactly who wrote this book. And not only do we not know who wrote this book, but we don't know exactly to whom he wrote it. Um, A lot of the other books, Philippians, Corinthians, Letter to the Laodiceans, we know exactly who received it. But we don't know exactly who received this book. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know who got it. But we do know that the people who got it, the the audience, they were of Hebrew origin. Um, They were of Jewish origin. And that's why it's called the book to the Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews, because there are people who came from Jewish origins. And we know that there were people who had turned to Christ and had experienced tremendous persecution people who experience deep, deep persecution. In the book, as you read it, you find out that the writer says, remember the church members that have gone to prison. Remember those, your friends, who have been in prison for the sake of the gospel. Don't forget them. Take care of them. Remember them. And he says also, I commend you because they've even taken your possessions for being a Christian. They've even come to your house and taken things away from you because you believe in Jesus Christ. And I commend you for continuing to pursue Christ, even when that stuff happened to you. 
So we know that these are people who experienced deep pain and discomfort for being Christians. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them to convince them that even though this is painful and difficult, Jesus Christ is still worth pursuing in your life. And he does this by showing them this big preeminent picture of a towering Jesus in their life and showing them all the angles of this towering Jesus. And he tells them, I know right now the persecutors seem powerful, but Jesus Christ is the most preeminent, powerful person in history. And so it's worthy of your life, worthy of your suffering to continue to pursue after him. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. I think that this is a book that we need today. And you might be asking, you know, what about us? You know, we just had the Morocco team come up and we shared a little bit about um, the Christians who are in Morocco. But you're wondering maybe, what about us? We're not being persecuted. Why do we need this book? I want to tell you that there is a sort of persecution that is coming upon the church and coming upon Christians now. And it may not be necessarily physical persecution in the West, but there is a definite philosophical persecution of the truth of God. And you might feel it. You might really, really feel it, especially in these days. And I think it originated from that original line that came from Satan to God's people in the garden. God had spoken to Adam and Eve, and he had, experienced, uh, he had shown them the experience of who he is. He had given them his word and his command. But then Satan comes, and what's the first thing he says to them? Did God really say, you may not eat of any tree in the garden? And, and if you think about what he said, that's not what God said. What did God say? You may eat of any tree in the garden. It is yours. I am generous. You may eat of any tree in the garden, but this tree... You shall not. But then Satan comes and he twists the words. And what does he say? Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? What kind of God is that? How oppressive. How uh, strict. No freedom. Did God really say that you can't? I can't believe he said that. And if you're Eve, what are you thinking? Wait, but it, I, I don't think he said that though. Is that what he said? I thought he said, you may eat of any tree. And Satan says, I can't believe he said, you can't eat of any tree in the garden. It's the first lie. Has God really spoken? And what has he said? And the echoes of that first lie still continue in our day today. And I want to show you how that continues in our day and continues in your life. The truth assaulted in the Garden of Eden is still the same lie that we see today. Read the first two verses, and this is where the author of Hebrews argues against this in our day. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The letter opens with this proclamation that God has spoken, and this is spiritual warfare against Satan's lie. And you see why Satan used this lie, right? Because if he can dismantle just the sheer fact that God has spoken, that the word has been given, that there is such a thing as truth, if he could dismantle that, then he can undo the foundations of our faith. The entire basis of Christianity falls if he can just undo the fact that truth exists and that truth comes from God. In the 20th century, uh, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he saw this. 
He saw this, this mantling of truth and what it was doing to society and what it could potentially do to society. He lived at the turn of the 20th century, and he said that because we have lost our connection with truth itself in God, because essentially we've cut God out of the equation. He says, you don't understand the uh, consequences of this, but because we have done this, the 20th century will be chaos. And he wrote, um, and thus spoke Zarathustra, uh, he wrote about the madman who came to the village, and I've mentioned this before here at Mosaic, but I think this is such an important illustration. Because here is Nietzsche, the atheist philosopher, saying that we need to understand the consequences of what happened. He talks about a madman who runs into a village and starts screaming, God is dead, God is dead, and we killed him. And what he's saying is that because we ignore the fact that God has spoken, he is effectively dead in our philosophy, our ethics, and our culture. God is dead, God is dead, and we have killed him. And he is alarming everyone. And let me read you some of it. This is what he wrote. The insane man jumped into their midst and transfixed them with his gazes. Where is God gone, he called out. I mean to tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers, but how have we done it? How are we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it now move? Whither do we move? Away from all suns? Do we not dash on in unceasingly backwards, sideways, forwards in all directions? Is there still an above? Is there still a below? Do we not stray as through infinite nothingness? Does not empty space breathe upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come on continually darker and darker? And then he says this, shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? See, he says, because we've taken truth out of our lives, will we not have to now light lanterns in the morning? The things that used to be clear to us now has become dark because now we don't know the foundations of who we are anymore. Will we not even have to light lanterns in the morning? Shall we not have to become gods now because of what we've done? You see, the, what he's saying is that because we've taken God out of the equation, someone has to be the anchor and source of all ethics. Morality has to find a new God. And he says, shall we not have to now become those gods because we have taken God out of the equation? Moral relativism is kind of the philosophical way to name it, that all morality is now relative because it's just based on people. And this led to a really disastrous um, war in the 20th century because Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy would be given to Hitler. And Adolf Hitler would personally deliver Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy um, to Stalin and Mussolini for their birthdays. And he believed that because now God is dead, we must now create a new God. We must now create a new source and anchor for all reality. And he called it the Ubermensch, the Superman. And Hitler would go on a journey to try to create an entire race of supermen, the highest form and anchor for all of humanity. Because God is dead, now we have to create a new superior Aryan race, the Superman. Hitler and Mussolini gave it power. Nietzsche gave it a philosophy, but it was all Satan's lie. Has God really spoken? If he hasn't, then we can now become gods of this world. 
Moral relativism is not just something that Hitler brought to life. It's not something that Nietzsche wrote about or Satan lied in the garden, but it's something that we hear in our lives now. Moral relativism is all around us. Things like what's true for you isn't true for me. There's no such thing as absolute truth. It all depends on your truth. There's no such thing as right and wrong. You ought not to judge. In fact, moral relativism is so ubiquitous, you barely even notice it anymore because it's so much a part of our culture. And Nietzsche says, what will happen if we unchain the earth from its sun? And you're starting to see, right, in our culture, what happens when you do that. My brothers and sisters, we need to notice this and we need to see that truth is real, that God has spoken, and that these things that we see in our culture, we need to have a firm foundation against it. Against that statement, when the more relativist says, what's true for you is not true for me, we ask, is that just true for you or is that just true for me? There are no absolute truths. Why are you so absolute about that? There's no such thing as right and wrong. Well, is that statement right or is that statement wrong? <laughs> you ought not to judge anyone. Will you judge me if I judge you? You see, brothers and sisters, we have to be able to see through moral relativism. It's all around us. And even atheist philosophers say that moral relativism is self-serving at its foundation. There is an American Philosophical Association, and in it, one of the atheist philosophers write that moral relativism is inherently selfish. And moral relativism is not used ever to lift up someone else. It's usually lift, used to lift up oneself. Let me read you a quote uh, from one of the atheist philosophers who wrote on this. This is an atheist now. He said, the real purpose of going relativist is always self-serving and opportunistic, to evade criticism and accountability. It's not so much a sincere belief as a convenient trump card to play whenever it suits you and then discreetly tuck away when no longer needed. You see, moral relativism is what happens when man becomes God and we exalt ourselves and we become self-serving and opportunistic. And that's exactly what Satan's goal was, for us to forget who we are. Shall we not have to become gods ourselves, Nietzsche said. You know, once this happens, we even lose the ability to understand who we are on the most fundamental level. Do you know that there are scientific and ethical conferences going on right now with the title, What Does It Mean to Be Human? What is human is actually a popular ethical conference title now. And there are those who now say maybe artificial intelligence deserves human rights. Because what is the mark of human? Isn't it intelligence? then should not artificial intelligence robots get human rights? Do they not deserve it? You see, this is what happens when we lose even our definition of what it means to be human. We don't even know who we are anymore. And should AI robots get human rights? Because what differentiates us and a, a robot? What happens, Nietzsche said, when we unchain the earth from its sun? When we cut out God from the equation, he says, won't we have to even light lanterns in the morning? The things we were able to see so clearly and obviously before, won't we have to light lanterns in the morning? We won't even know who we are anymore. I was intrigued by this documentary that came out. I haven't watched it, but the title fascinated me. And I'm not saying it was good or if it, there's anything true in it. I didn't watch it. But in June, Daily Wired released a documentary with the title, What is a Woman? 
And essentially, it's a 94-minute documentary asking the question, what is a woman, and showing how difficult it is for someone in academia to even come up with the answer to what is a woman. Nietzsche said, won't we have to light lanterns in the morning? If we cut off God, won't we have to light lanterns in the morning? What will happen when we unchain the earth from its sun? My brothers and sisters, this is the moral relativism that has started from uh, the lie that Satan said in the garden. This is what happens when God does not speak. Has God really said? Has God really said who you are? And this is not just in mainstream media, but this is also in our hearts. Does it really matter if I sin? Has God really said? Is it sin if no one sees? Am I just what I do? Is my value coming from what I produce? Am I what I have? Is my car a reflection of who I am? You see, all of these things, it comes because we have unchained the earth from its sun. Won't we have to light lanterns in the morning? And brothers and sisters, the book of Hebrews opens up by saying, no, God has spoken. The truth does exist. That there is an absolute truth and his name is Jesus. And that we need to come back to that. If the rest of the letter to Hebrews is going to be of any encouragement to us, then we need to have this at his foundations, that God has spoken and what he has spoken is true. And that is the truest thing that is true about you, is what God has said about you. If you go to verse 3 of this, it says that Jesus has spoken and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's a statement that says that the word exists, that truth exists, that there is something that consists in the universe because of the word of God. In the Bible, you usually hear power of his word, right? This is the reverse, the word of his power. What's the difference? The power of his word highlights the power that comes from his word, that his word creates, that his word has meaning and it has effect. The power of his word, but this is the word of his power. This is the other way around. It's highlighting the fact that there is truth in this world. That there is a consistent, absolute truth. And it comes from the fact that God has spoken. It comes from the word of his power. My brothers and sisters, as Christians, living in 2022, if you are going to have the courage to live out your faith and run this race, you're going to need conviction that God has spoken. You are not living your life in faith based on a maybe, he said. Or a guess. But you can only build the courage of faith on top of real convictions that God has spoken. And so who are you? What makes you different from artificial intelligence? God says, you are made in my image. You are my son. You are my daughter in whom you are beloved. You are beloved in my image. Who are you? You are redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. You are different from artificial intelligence. I have died for you and bled out for you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And you are dearly loved. Where are you going? You are going to eternity with your father. Why are you of any value? You are of every value because he loves you. That he knows you. And that he had you in mind before you even existed. That's who you are. And we cannot lose those things in the milieu of the philosophies and the trends that are going around today. God has spoken, brothers and sisters. That's who you are. You are not wrestling for something that you made up. You're not wasting your life following a maybe it's true. He has spoken. 
And that anchor must exist in the heart of every Christian if you are going to have courage to live in this life. Lastly, um, not only is truth assaulted um, in the garden and philosophy in our world, but truth is exalted in Jesus Christ. And we see that in our passage today. Let's read verse 1 to 3 again. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Did you get that? Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's showing the preeminence of Jesus, that he is reality, and that all of reality bows down to him. And he makes this uh, argument by showing that Jesus is preeminent over the angels. I would read, if I had enough time, I would go through every one of these. But he, has, he shows seven proof texts that show that Jesus is higher than the angels. Just read verse 4 or 5. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. He used a seven pretext, proof text to show that Jesus is greater than the angels because it matters. And this is what it means. It means that Jesus is higher than any reality. You see, the angels are the unseen realities, the hands of God that work behind creation. And he's showing that Jesus is higher than every reality that exists in creation. Despite the confusion that you see around you, despite the relativism, the nihilism, despite all these isms that you see around you, there is no ideology or power higher than Jesus Christ. And he wants to reassure his people of that. You are not wasting your life. Despite the ridicule you might feel in this world, because you follow Jesus, because you believe in absolute truth, you are not wasting your life. He is higher than the angels. He's higher than every reality, every ideology. And today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you to look into this fact. You know, I became a believer in college by going through kind of a journey to understand what is truth. Because when I heard about Jesus, and I had heard about Jesus many times, but when, I, when really God opened my eyes to see Jesus for the first time in college, it occurred to me, if this is true, he's either everything or nothing. If, if, because these claims are that he is actually everything in reality or he's nothing, he's a lie. And so I went on this journey, this up and down uh, journey of trying to figure out what is truth. And my journey to find out what is truth landed me in realizing that Jesus is truth. But I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, to pursue this and not walk away. It's just fascinating um, conversation between Pontius Pilate and Jesus in John 18. And Pontius Pilate has Jesus in front of him, and he kind of wants to exonerate him because he doesn't really think that Jesus did anything wrong. And so he's asking Jesus, what did you do? Why did these Jews want to kill you? And so he's asking Jesus, did you say that you were a king? Because that's, that's bad. Caesar will kill you if you said something like that. Did you say that you were a king? And that conversation leads to this conversation about truth. It's a fascinating conclusion. In uh, John 18, verse 37, it says this, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, 
let me tell you, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate does this. He says, what is truth? If there was ever a perfect illustration of the postmodern world, it's Pilate who's asking questions and then when he comes close to the truth, he says, there's no such thing as truth. And he walks away. Standing before truth incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. He asks, what is truth? And doesn't stay to hear the answer. My brothers and sisters, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, do not be like Pilate. Seek him with all of your heart. And if you do, he will reveal himself to you. He is the truth, the way, and the life. There is no one who comes to the Father except through him. I experienced this myself. And if you seek him with all of your heart, he will show you he is the truth. Do not walk away. And for us, let me just close with three um, applications of if Jesus is the supremacy of God, if he is truth in our reality, these are three things that it means for us in our everyday life, okay? Number one, the supremacy of Jesus Christ casts out fear in our lives. There are so many ideologies, so many isms in our world that freak us out, aren't there? Every new one that comes up scares us. But liberalism, conservatism, postmodernism, capitalism, nationalism, individualism, atheism will all one day bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every ism will bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not fear. Parents, I want to talk to you in this point. Some of you dropped off your, your, your students, your son and daughter, to college for the very first time. Scary, isn't it? Scary. Scared of what ideologies might enter the heart and mind of your child? Well, my brothers and sisters, I call you, do not fear. Because every ism, every ideology will bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not need to fear, but be faithful in prayer. Teach them about Christ. I know you can't learn all of the isms and dismantle them all, but tell them about Jesus. Because one day, every one of those ideologies will bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not parent in fear, because the Lord is supreme. He is higher than the angels, the author of Hebrews says. The supremacy of Jesus means that we can cast out fear against all opposition. The second thing it means, the supremacy of Jesus Christ means that if it's true, then we should bow our knee to him in obedience. If he is supreme, then we should bow our knee to him in obedience because it is the best thing for us. Let me show you what that means. If Jesus is not just a person, but he's actually truth itself, then that means that all of his commands are in line with truth, are in line with logic, are in line with goodness, are in line with your design. And that means that every time you decide to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not just disobeying him, but you are going against your very nature. That you are actually rebelling against your very design. If Jesus is truth, then the way we sin against him it's not just sinning against him, but we are actually breaking ourselves. If he is the Logos, if in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word created us, the way we sin, brothers and sisters, we're actually warring against ourselves. That means the sin is not just wrong, but it's self-destructive. That idols are not just dead, but they're corroding. That sin patterns are not just wrong, but they're impairing. And worldliness is not just shameful, but it's corrupting of who you are. It's keeping you from being who you're supposed to be. Young people, I don't want to 
criminalize one sin over another. But sometimes it's hard to understand why premarital sex is wrong. Because in this world, it's normal. Not that I'm pointing the finger at one particular sin, but don't you feel why premarital sex is wrong? Don't you feel that it calluses your heart? Married people who are engaging in adultery in one form or another, don't you see that it's not enough to just keep it a secret from your spouse? Don't you see that it is actually corroding because Jesus is not giving you arbitrary commands to follow, but Jesus Christ is truth. The book of Colossians, it says that in him all things consist, all things hold together. And so when we break his law, we break ourselves. That's why we bend our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is he preeminent, but he's truth. And that means that our obedience leans us in the direction of our design, and it makes us more of who we are. Lastly, the supremacy of Jesus, it means that the truest thing in the world then, if Jesus is the truest person, then the truest thing in the world is grace. That grace and mercy are the truest things there is. It says in verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You know what that means? That means that all of creation reflects God's character, right? And all of creation then reflects Jesus. And when you see Jesus bend down and lift up a prostitute's head, and when you see Jesus reach out his hand and touch a dying leper, when you see Jesus go to someone and say, your sins are forgiven, you are seeing the exact imprint of his nature, of God's nature, the exact imprint of design. And that means that the truest thing in this world is grace and mercy and love. That those things are more true than how you will feel when you screw up this week. Because the preeminence of Christ tells us that the truest thing of nature is the exact imprint of God is Jesus Christ himself. It says here in our passage that Jesus, making purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That means after showing grace to sinners, he sat down and he said, this is what it's going to be. And the truest thing about you and me is that we are loved and forgiven and shown mercy and grace. My brothers and sisters, because Jesus is preeminent, that means the truest thing about this universe is that mercy reigns, that grace triumphs, that the cross echoes for all eternity, and it's the loudest, truest thing that has ever happened. Mercy is final. That's who you are. Don't let this world tell you and confuse you about who you are. Don't hear Satan's lie over God's proclamation. Don't hear, has God really spoken? Are you just following a bunch of stuff that a guy is saying at a pulpit? No. The author of Hebrews opens up and says, God has spoken. Truth exists, and his name is Jesus Christ. And how beautiful that name is, because his name is mercy. His name is grace. And that's the truest thing about who I am. That's the truest thing about who you are. You are forgiven. You are loved. And no reality, ideology, schism, or ism will ever defeat that reality about who you are in Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer and let that lead us to worship and praise. Let's drink it in. 
the truth of God and be anchored in it so we can keep running our race hard. Uh, let's go to our Father in prayer. Let's receive this in our hearts.